Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's Thursday, June 29th, 2023, and this is Markets Daily from Coindesk. I'm Adam B. Levine, here again with George Kaloudis for your Daily News Roundup. On today's show, we're talking Bitcoin, rising interest rates, the latest headlines, and more. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Bitcoin is back to its winning ways, up 2.4% since our last show. So too is the rest of crypto, with Ether up 1.5%. June has been a good month for crypto in general. Mark Connors, head of research for Canadian digital asset manager 3IQ, wrote in a message to Coindesk that, quote, June has been the biggest month since November for digital assets as it relates to news flow. It's not unusual to see the market take a breather, end quote. In that message to Coindesk, Connors also took note of a metric I often look at, Bitcoin dominance. Bitcoin dominance is the measure of Bitcoin's market value in comparison to the rest of the crypto market. Bitcoin dominance has increased to a 26-month high coming in around 52%. Bitcoin tends to lead the way out of a bear market, and if you expect us to get out of the bear market, expect Bitcoin dominance to continue ticking upwards. As for feelings and animal spirits, Bitcoin sentiment has turned bullish over the past week with the Coindesk Bitcoin indicator, which I like to call a mood ring for Bitcoin's price, climbing to significant upturn territory after languishing in downturn areas for weeks. All said, tomorrow is the last day of June, which means markets will be eyeing the expiry of Bitcoin options contracts, which could fuel a price increase or send it spiraling in the immediate aftermath. Should be an interesting one. Today's crypto coverage comes courtesy of Coindesk Markets analyst James Rubin. Bitcoin is currently trading at $30,794, while Ether is trading at $1,876 per token, according to the Coindesk Market Index. Before we get to today's traditional markets update, a reminder that I'll be handing off markets daily to George Kaloudis, and Friday is my last show. If you'd like to be there for the start of my next show, which is a yet unnamed weekly dive into the philosophy and implications of the emerging age of creative artificial intelligence, head over to adamblevine.substack.com and subscribe for free. And if you're wondering what this message is all about, listen to episode 1140 for June 28th, 2023, where I provide a more complete explanation. Once again, that's adamblevine.substack.com, and thanks for listening. And shifting to traditional markets. In the U.S., markets are ticking up with the Dow Industrial Average adding 0.1%, the S&P 500 increasing 0.2%, and the Nasdaq Composite putting on 0.4%. The relative strength in U.S. markets can likely be attributed to banks passing yesterday's Federal Reserve stress tests, 
which looked to determine how well banks could weather a severe recession. The 23 banks that the Federal Reserve tested passed, even though the results of the test said there would be a hypothetical $541 billion in losses in the scenarios they projected. That number on its face is so big that it doesn't really make sense in our heads, but let's be a little bit more honest here. Of course they passed. Fed Chair Jerome Powell himself has said that expectations drive inflation and recessions. Why would messaging from the Federal Reserve be, okay, we are totally in for it if we go into a recession? It'd be a self-fulfilling prophecy to signal to the world that the banks in the US are doomed. I'm not saying that the banks in the US are doomed. What I am saying is that we've seen a few banks recently fail real-life stress tests. So perhaps the banking system is hypothetically safe. But what happens in the real world when things go south? Some food for thought. Anyway, back to markets. In Europe, the regional stock 600 gained 0.3%, London's FTSE 100 is down 0.6%, and Germany's DAX remained relatively flat. Over in Asia, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index lost 1.2%, the Shanghai Composite seeded 0.2%, and Japan's Nikkei 225 added 0.1%. In commodities markets, Brent crude, that's international benchmark for oil, added 2.3%, trading hands at $74.26 per barrel. Gold is down a bit more than half a percentage point, currently priced at $1,903 per troy ounce. And yet again, First Republic is up big over 77%, now trading at roughly 71 cents. Markets are ridiculous, so of course First Republic is up. Why wouldn't it be? Like we mentioned earlier, banks passed the Fed's stress tests. And you know what? First Republic is a bank. It doesn't matter that it's a bank which failed a real-life stress test. Other banks passed a hypothetical stress test, and so up we go. Today's traditional market coverage draws from MarketWatch. Stay tuned for after the break. We'll dig into the real reason why the Fed may be on a limited time frame. We'll be right back. Welcome back. After maintaining an exceedingly low core interest rate for years, the U.S. Central Bank has trapped itself with limited viable solutions and a slender pathway towards achieving its primary objective. That stated goal is to bring down generationally high inflation, at least according to official measures, which both shape and potentially underrepresent the average American's experience of inflation, especially compared to prior CPI methodologies. With rates already up some 2,000% compared to the start of 2022, the Federal Reserve has, in percentage terms, raised rates at a faster pace than any time I could find in recorded history. It's worth examining why they would do that, why it's likely to get worse before it gets better, at least in the short term, and why eventually they'll be forced to return to artificially low rates. But first, some basics. Economies are complex things, market economies even more so. Rather than a central coordinating party allocating scarce resources, market economies rely on actual buyers, representing demand, and actual sellers, representing supply, finding an ever-shifting price equilibrium where buyers are happy to be buying and sellers are happy to be selling. That applies to crates of bananas, but it also applies to things like interest rates. A company selling a lot of debt might do so at a high interest rate if they're perceived as risky, or a lower interest rate if they're perceived as safe. But the amount of debt that they're selling also comes into play. Selling a small amount of debt into a lot of demand will push the interest rate the borrower needs to pay lower, while selling a large amount of debt into a smaller pool of demand will necessarily push it higher. In short, everyone needs to feel good about the deal, at least relative to the alternatives, for it to happen. So when the U.S. Central Bank conducts monetary policy, they're actually doing a bunch of things at once by taking an element of the economy that should be self-adjusting to whatever the equilibrium is at that moment and instead setting it manually. The chaos that's resulted from that abrupt adjustment is like spinning the wheel of a cruise ship that is the U.S. government, forcing smaller boats surrounding it to abruptly change course or risk catastrophe. 
Most are able to get out of the way, but some get unlucky and are run over or capsized in its wake. That's the monetary policy-induced banking crisis of 2023, the near collapse of the UK pension industry late last year, and many other would-be casualties that central banks around the world are papering over and keeping afloat through bailout-by-any-other-name programs. So the big question is, why would they do that? Why not take things a bit slower knowing that, if the past is any guide, it'll be two years after the artificial rate adjustments before they find their way into the real economy and cause the job losses that ultimately is a big part of how the Fed intends to bring official inflation down? The answer is, unfortunately, because the alternative is a lot worse. The U.S. government has, at the federal level at least, been borrowing money to pay for ongoing expenses for a very long time, and increasingly so in the modern era. Debt issued by the federal government is considered so riskless that it's treated in many situations as a cash equivalent. But to the government, this is essentially a credit card. They issue and sell treasury bonds to borrow money, and as those bonds become due, they pay back the principal plus whatever interest is owed. But the credit card never gets paid off, so periodically, when Congress raises the debt ceiling as they recently did again, they are increasing the credit available to the government. According to the National Debt Clock this morning, the federal government's credit card has a balance of more than $32 trillion. And that's the problem, or at least a big part of it. Not so much that the limit on the card won't be raised further, but that the interest rate paid on that debt has been held at artificially low rates while it's grown substantially. And since we're not paying off those debts, but simply rolling the balance forward with new borrowing, the sharply higher interest rates in markets today, especially compared against the start of just last year, are a real and growing problem. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Based on the current interest payments, Treasury is paying less than 2% on the total debt. But a lot of the debt that we're dealing with was financed at those rock-bottom rates before the Fed kicked off this abrupt hiking cycle. As that low interest debt comes due month after month, it needs to be replaced by what is now much more expensive to the government and taxpayers who nominally fund it, bills, notes, and bonds. And that means that unless rates take a nosedive, our interest payments are about to shoot through the roof. And in fact, they already are. A peek at the Treasury sale on June 26th lays it out pretty plain and simple. The Treasury borrowed on our behalf $162 billion worth of new debt, with the lion's share in short-term Treasury bills carrying what are now described as high yields. Now, about 20% of the total government debt is backed by these short-term notes, which means that the Treasury is soon going to be forced to lean on issuing longer-term notes and bonds, which will lock in higher interest rates for years on end. And all of this is compounded by a big, hairy question. Who's going to buy all this debt? Many of the big players out there who historically have been buyers are cutting their holdings, and have been for years. According to the Treasury Department's official data, foreign buyers sold off $140 billion in holdings in April compared to 2022. U.S. banks also offloaded a bunch, in many cases lending them to the Fed at preferential rates as another form of temporary bailout. And of course the Fed, in its fight against inflation, has been selling off some of the government debt that's on its balance sheet, which is to say that a part of the government is holding debt belonging to another part of the government as a way to add demand. All of this means that government debt is now flooding the market, even as demand is evaporating. Bank of America has warned of a possible demand vacuum, which could only be plugged by higher yields for longer-term securities. That means that the only way to make sure that there are actually enough buyers for all of this debt is if the premium the government pays to lenders goes up leading to higher interest expenses that get locked in for potentially many years. And so, if interest rates keep rising and stay high for too long, this could very quickly vault interest expenses on the national debt into the top three federal expenses across all spending. And that puts the Fed in particular, and the government more generally, in a tough spot. The fast-paced rate hikes we've seen so far also now make sense. They knew their window to raise rates was fleeting. 
so an abrupt and dramatic scare that could shock and awe markets into an unacknowledged recession and bring official measures of inflation down at least a little bit before inevitably shifting back into subsidizing demand was, and still appears to be, the least worst path, at least if you're not willing to blow up the system. And it's not just about the money. There's also politics at play here. Any other approach risks the federal government facing increasing, well-deserved scrutiny on just why it's a good idea to borrow ever more trillions of dollars to fund ever larger governments of spending, even as the results of that spending deliver less and less to the average person. For all my cynicism and frustration with this approach, you do have to admire the gall of it. Our modern, sophisticated society has been seemingly hypnotized into thinking that all of this is just normal and not even worth paying attention to. But it's not normal, and it is worth paying attention to. This is the high-stakes gamble the Fed is playing out in all of our names, and even if they win this time, we're all still losing day to day, while the bill just gets higher. The only good news is that this is fundamentally unsustainable, and it will end. And so, we wait. We've got Zero Hedge and Bloomberg linked in the show notes on this one. Turning to international news, Canadian lawmakers are urging their government to draw up a national blockchain strategy. The idea is to bolster the country's regulatory stance and show support for the industry. Part of a 16-recommendation proposal, it emphasizes the potential for economic and job creation within the blockchain sector. Canada has been a relative hardliner on digital asset regulation, at least if you exclude the U.S. from that calculation. But this could be a somewhat pivotal shift in their approach, balancing consumer protection with innovation promotion, if they get it right. A tailored regulatory framework for stablecoins is also on the table, echoing the European Union's approach, which is not particularly surprising. Meanwhile, in Europe, the European Central Bank is planning to embark on further exploratory work for settling financial market transactions through distributed ledger technology, or DLT as it's sometimes known. That'll be starting next year. In addition to investigating a potential retail central bank digital currency, or CBDC, the ECB's aim is to modernize the transaction process between financial institutions for securities or foreign exchange, which is actually a pretty good idea. Although the exploration is described as time-limited and suggests it will adhere to existing rules, it may signal the ECB's increasing interest in blockchain technology and its potential applications, even if true adoption is something of a poison pill. But I digress. And last but not least, MasterCard is stepping into the world of tokenized bank deposits. MasterCard's multi-token network, or MTN, is now in beta testing over in Britain, with a reported aim to bring regulated money into the blockchain ecosystem. Essentially, they're creating a pathway for banks in different countries to transfer value more easily and swiftly via tokenized deposits. It's an optimization that'll be much appreciated, even if it leaves the true innovation behind blockchains outside in the cold. Turning to industry news, Bank of America released a new research report heralding the transformative potential of blockchain technology, specifically focused on tokenization. The report says the bank foresees a significant shift in how value is transferred, settled, and stored across all industries due to this process, which involves converting real-world assets into representations on blockchain-based tokens. According to the bank, tokenization will not only enhance efficiency and reduce costs, but also catalyze a new generation of software-as-a-service companies, leading to mainstream adoption. Interestingly, they predict a much swifter acceptance of digital assets compared to previous disruptive technologies like radio, television, and email. It's always amusing seeing a too-big-to-fail bank take this sort of perspective on things. It's one that I've had since late 2013 when I first started talking about an experimentation with non-currency tokenization. And while many still don't understand the transformative impact, they will, soon enough. Elsewhere, Coinbase is standing its ground against the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, with their allegations that the exchange has listed unregistered securities. 
In its first formal legal response, Coinbase argues that digital assets on its platform aren't security since they're not tied to any contracts with the asset's promoters. As a secondary market exchange, Coinbase also emphasized that these transactions do not carry obligations from issuers to investors, and hence the transactions shouldn't be treated as securities transactions. The exchange also criticized the SEC for prioritizing enforcement actions over rulemaking and reiterated its calls for clear regulatory guidance. We will save further commentary from me on this one for another day. And finally, in a dramatic development, the former compliance officer of the bankrupt FTX crypto exchange is facing a new lawsuit. Accused of acting as a fixer, the former FTX official is alleged to have paid hush money to potential whistleblowers who threatened to expose the company's misuse of customer funds. Charged with legal malpractice, breach of fiduciary duty, corporate waste, and fraudulent transactions, it's the latest fallout in the FTX saga and another set of allegations to watch. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode was edited by Ryan. And for those of you still with us, we'd love to hear what you think. You can send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.